Hello, my name is Chris Galvin, and I'm here at the International Code of Conduct Association, also known as ICOCA, to introduce the second in a series of podcasts about future security trends, implications for human rights. Today's episode is titled Managing Risks, COVID-19 and Lessons Learned for the Future of Responsible Security. I'm joined today by Richard Wilde, Director of Government and Defence at Control Risks, an ICOCA certified member company, and Chair of the UK Risk Industry Body Security in Complex Environments Group, otherwise known as SCEG. Richard, can you tell us a bit about yourself? You worked in government for many years, so what is it that drew you to the security sector? Well, thanks, Chris, and um, I'm very grateful to be here talking today. I um, was in the British Foreign Office for a little short of 30 years and served in a lot of places like Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Italy, Afghanistan, and ended up in the end in Germany, uh, working in the embassy as political counselor. And when I retired from the foreign office, I was keen to take on a challenge that meant that I could both em employ some of the, the talents and, and, and the skills that I'd learned over many years, my interests in, in work overseas, but also add value to areas where things were not so easy. And I think working in the risk industry and in some countries that uh, have particular security and complicated challenges fitted well with what I wanted to do. I wanted to encourage people to go to places, to get on planes, do things, try and put things right in the world. And that may sound kind of uh, very much as if I was on the mission. I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm conscious that these things take a very long time to evolve, but I'm also conscious of that Edmund Burke thing that all it needs for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And I hope I'm, I'm a good enough man to at least contribute a bit. So that's really where I'm coming from. I, as a young man, I, I worked in the foreign, British Foreign Office with the UN in, in, uh, in ESCAP in Thailand. So I was aware of the broader picture and the use of multinational and multilateral firms in trying to find solutions to some of the more difficult problems. So I hope that kind of answers my background. It does. Thank you for that. And, and these are not easy times. Getting on planes and visiting places at the moment is certainly not so easy. Um, so before we focus on future trends, I'd first like to get your perspective on the present situation, particularly on COVID-19. So six months ago, we held a workshop, uh, as you'll remember, on future security trends. It was the day before ICOCA's annual General Assembly. And little did we know then that uh, within a few months, much of the world would be in lockdown. So what's COVID-19 meant for, for control risk operations around the world? And what's the company learned from the pandemic? Thanks, Chris. Well, what I think the company has learned is, is what the other members of SCAG have also learned. I think it's fair to say it's something that extends across the risk industry. That being prepared for things isn't just a case of saying to um, firms that you work with, have a a plan on, on standby. It's trying to believe in the, get them to believe in the culture. I think a lot of firms were extremely surprised that this went on for longer than we uh, originally people intended. But actually that is, that is part of the whole crisis management process. But what I would say without kind of trying to emphasize the kind of philosophy too much, very practically, what came across is that firms and institutions that were already in places uh, were much better suited to ones that weren't. And this is slightly countercultural to the, the world before COVID in that the idea was that, well, perhaps you could have a very, very narrow footprint in a country 
and you could visit because why not? You could get on a plane and be there in days. What we're finding now is that actually being somewhere is terrifically important. A lot of farms are saying we, we actually can't get people in. And if we can, they are so locked down, they can't move around. We need a whole variety of advice from, you know, could you visit the firm that we're trying to get uh, I know, PPE from or trying to get products with or trying to sign contracts with to can you also advise us on the risk environment that obtains in that country. And I think that's the second thing that I might highlight is that risks have risen and there's no two ways about talking about that, uh, sorry, avoiding it. And that is that certainly in things like social changes, there is a lot of social unease about what's happened. There's a great deal of frustration. There's just not just the frustration of the country, the country's problems, but just pure frustration of being, not being able to go and see people, not being able to see your relatives, not being able to look after them. And this has changed the atmospherics in a lot of places. And with that behind it shortly comes the actual impact of, of illness. Um, you know, can people be expected to do what they used to do before? Is your, are your public services going to become under, uh, under strain? So it's quite clear that the, the risks are rising. And in that mix, there's also cyber. It's a big issue that I'd highlight is that a lot of firms have found themselves being subject to much, much higher levels of cyber attack and fraud than they have heretofore. And I think that's going to continue for a bit. My third point I'd say, <clears throat> just to answer your question, we can obviously carry on this theme, is that it's going to be at least a medium term problem. In Western Europe, countries are talking about their societies and their economies stabilizing in about 18 months to two years time. So that I think is a, a kind of good rule of thumb across the world. So those, those are the main points I'd highlight is there's the practical step of being somewhere, being able to do something. There's the fact that risk is rising. Uh, and then finally, there's, a there's the point that this is going to be something with us for a time. But there are also other points which I'm very happy to discuss with you, Chris. Yeah, one which I'd like to turn to is, um, and, th and this you know, impacts ICOCA to some extent, is that given the restrictions on international travel that are still in place, um, and given that you know, many countries are still in some state of lockdown, uh, including many that uh, might be described as complex environments, what does this really mean for maintaining high standards across the private security sector? Because tried and tested methods for ensuring standards like audits and in-country visits aren't possible at the moment. So how should oversight mechanisms be adapted to ensure that companies are operating responsibly? Technology, you know, has played such an important role in so many areas of social interaction during this crisis. How's it really being embraced as a tool to help monitor private security company operations, for example? Well, great question, Chris. And um, it was absolutely the issue that I wanted to, to raise after my preamble. Just to make the point that high standards are absolutely essential for ICOCA, membership like SCAG, my firm, etc. You know, if we lose sight of that, it, it's not just the issues that will challenge those organizations. It will actually have a huge impact against on society and industry and business right across the sector. It's taken many, many years to, uh, to implement these high standards. It's essential that we preserve them. But you make a very good point about the practical thing. I'm, not going, I'm obviously not uh, someone who's, who's in an assessment group, 
but I do prize that they do exist independently of us to give us that independent oversight. So I can't really explain what they're going to do, but I do know they're working on it. Um, and I think they, they deserve our full support. But there are some things there that I think they might look at. And absolutely, the use of technology. Now, I do understand that people say, well, we certainly couldn't get another firm, let's say, in the security sector to carry out a survey of one of its competitors. But I think you could be thinking about doing quite a lot online in terms of the bureaucracy of review. You know, have you gone through all these various stages, which in a sense, the paperwork we do, essentially expecting people to fill it in accurately. But when you go beyond that, um, you get on to kind of physical checks. I think there are things that we can do. At a very big scale, you can look at satellite photography if you've got a huge area that needs to be kind of monitored to make sure that there haven't been violations of standards. I think you can use drone surveys with uh, drone technology and drone flights over places to video things. I was very struck many years ago. I heard about people in a slightly inventive way in, in uh, Afghanistan in the early 2000s trying to monitor crops introduction to replace opium we're using video links uh, via satellite phones to try and prove that these various products were being used properly so there's all that on technology side there's also the question of kind of what i might call longer deployments i think if you did get assessors and this obviously will be a challenge for them personally but brought into countries properly equipped properly isolated when they need to be and instead of having a trip in where you'd spend, let's say, three or four days checking various standards, I think you might find that you had to be deployed for two or three weeks, but you could try and cover as much as possible. But I think the issue here is also medium term. I think we will hopefully come to a position in about 18 months time where life can be much more normal. Uh, it won't always be the same, but I think the trick is at the moment to make sure that we cover the next 18 months and some of those ideas might help. Well, thank you for that. And uh, we, we look forward to those normal days. But, but in the meantime, um, private security companies have been deemed an essential service in many countries. There are guards protecting many sites that include hospitals. And this raises a lot of questions. Some of these are, you know, who's acts as an assessor or implementer of a lockdown in a pandemic situation? Given that they're on the front lines, what kind of surveillance role might security companies play in, in tracking COVID-19 and potentially future uh, pandemics? What have been the supply chain impacts for security companies and what human vi rights violations might occur? And that's both to and by private security personnel. Can you give us your perspective on, on some of these issues? Again, Chris, a, a great question. And of course, you know, uh, I'm... I'm giving you some ideas and, and they're very much personal ones. I think you're absolutely right that we will have to add pandemics uh, much further up to the implementation stage of our planning. We've always, the, the, the risk industry has always put actually pandemic flu at its highest level, knowing about the potential implications of it. And I think along with all the other challenges of urbanization and climate change, which are kind of tied into the implications that came out of pandemics, uh, we're going to have to take these seriously. I think we're going to have to move much more into an information, integrated information environment in the security field. And what I mean by that is having integrated solutions, which means that you're both interested in the information available, as well as the practical aspects, which 
needed to be faced in finding security solutions. So understanding, let's say, the political and economic context in a place, is it possible that private security firms could do more within the confines, obviously, of what's legal, decent and honest? whether or not you do to need, need to do due diligence on many more institutions, whether cyber threat is going to be a major part of what's going to create the problems that you're going to have to sort out. And I think that slightly more far-sighted view of the security solution is going to be essential so that instead of us saying we've got security products and systems to stop people doing things. We've got to work out why they're doing it in the first place and see if we can advise people to do things differently. Some of the unrest that's happened around the world, people are now looking with hindsight saying, actually, if we'd done things differently a few years ago, or we put into train things today that could start to diffuse some of these tensions, we wouldn't need extensive security solutions. On the same topic though, I think we're also going to find the arrival of non-stake actors in greater numbers. Now, I don't, obviously mercenaries is something that everyone immediately thinks about when they uh, talk about this topic. I don't think they're going to go away and it's essential that the ICOCA and its sister institutions like SCEG monitor this very closely with our international colleagues and governments to make sure that that type of approach to life is firmly put in its box. But it's other things also that I think we have to bear in mind, you know, rising perhaps insurgency in places where people haven't got the, the access to basic foodstuffs or water. Uh, these are going to become issues which may not be driven by people connected to ideologies or foreign governments. But we're also going to be finding, as I said earlier, I think a lot more about cyber and fraud. I've made those two things quite quite distinct. There's a cyber fraud and cyber threat, of course, and there's just common or garden fraud or elements of it. I think those are both going to come up the agenda quite considerably in the coming years. And part of the solutions, just to hop back to that again, is preparedness, social awareness, and training. I think we're going to expect much higher levels of training and preparedness. It's strange, you know, that we, in, in most countries, we, we employ a fire service, uh, which, of course, isn't in its emergency situation uh, that often. And when it isn't, it's preparing, training and educating its population. But we don't mind having those people, in a sense, doing their tier two jobs for much of the time because we need them when they want to do rise up to their tier one jobs. I think there's going to be a similar attitude to that. I'm just interested, you mentioned if we'd done things differently, we wouldn't necessarily need some of the security solutions that we have now. Have you got a particular example in mind that would illustrate that? Well, I think it's, it's a broader question of us being able to influence, when I ask, I mean, the security community, influencing, let's say, decision makers in big firms or in governments, uh, especially in a developing scenario, to say you do realize that by virtue of our experience on the ground, we see you're um, alienating parts of your society. And if you can do more about that, then you'll find that you're going to have far fewer security challenges. Now, I think there's a truth to power issue here. Now, whether or not, of course, many of our firms want to do that at this stage um, is, is a question. But I think you could say to certain governments and certain bigger institutions, if we're taking on this tender to help you on such and such, 
can we try and include the fact? You may not be allowed to, but we should report to you on what's going on at a certain level. And I don't mean, of course, you know, violating any um, uh, levels of human rights or, or invasions of privacy, but actually saying, do you know, we think you've got a problem here that I think you may need solutions for. That may be that that's simply not part of the process, um, may not be that anyone's interested in it, but it's an interesting issue because it may be that that is potentially part of the solution. Now, you've kind of alluded to um, one of the topics of the discussion at the workshop last year, which was the, the role of non-state actors. And it seems over the last couple of years, even the last six months, there have been more and more stories involving mercenaries, whether that's the Wagner Group, apparently active in various kind of African states, or whether it's the recent failed coup in Venezuela. So why do you think the use of mercenaries is on the rise? And this is, is this a trend that, that ICOCA, whose role is to raise private security industry standards, should really be concerned about? Well, uh, again, like all my comments, they are very much a personal view of what's going on. Yes, of course, ICOCA should be, because we want to make a, a clear distinction between the reasonable, proper use of security, security advice, and as I say, increasingly integrated approach to perhaps some of the challenges like climate change and environment and, uh, and pandemic flu, obviously. But where we have to draw a line, <clears throat> we are not in the game of being able to resolve that question of, um, uh, of mercenaries. I think we have to say, this is something for governments to talk about. But I think we can also make a, t a point of, of making it clear to governments where we come across this practice, we find situations where people are tending towards this or the use of security for the wrong reason. So I don't think we can solve it. And I obviously have to leave this to a much broader community to discuss, but I think we should be seriously concerned about it. I think people still find it difficult sometimes to make a distinction between proper, proportionate, legal and effective security advice uh, from security providers and what you see in uh, mercenaries in certain parts of the world. I think it's important that we keep up that distinction. Now, um, you've mentioned a few of the, of the trends which are also discussed. So increasing urbanization, climate change, you've already mentioned technology. Um, how do you think managing and delivering particularly responsible security is going to evolve given these trends that are going on? And, and obviously now we have to add pandemics to the mix, but, but clearly for many companies that they'd already put that at the top of the agenda. Well, that's a very good question. And I think um, what we may find is, and obviously I'm, I'm guessing here a bit, is that security becomes a slightly hybrid version in the future. I think people have heretofore tended to see security as doing one main mission. But I, th I imagine there may be an element of having to review the health and safety aspects of certain situations so that you might, do you leave, for example, questions about whether people should be allowed to come to work if they haven't proven their, their health status. Should that be left to HR to make that decision at the front gate? Or should it be left to security or a combination of it? Now, I don't have any solution to that, but I think security will be more part of that debate than heretofore. And we may find that actually we change the title of security into risk because it is managing risk. 
And there may be times when someone says, well, this is really for the people who maintain security at our front door to say, I'm sorry, you can't come in. Or to say, yes, no, you can. You've, you've actually passed the criteria needed to be allowed in. And so dealing with problems like pandemic flu have a parallel with someone who you want to be certain doesn't pose a security or a fraud risk or any other risk being allowed into your building. Or indeed, someone sending you emails with attachments. That is a, a kind of a, a security risk too. So I'm not sure we have an answer yet, but I think what I'm really saying is that the security industry should be alert to these things and aware of them and be um, imaginative in trying to see how you can solve or some way some of these problems. Now, finally, you've, you've already mentioned two risks, cyber and, and fraud, as trends that are happening now and, and may define things in the kind of near and medium term. Um, I'd be interested to get your kind of insights on, on what you think the angle is from ICOCA here in terms of responsible security, other human rights issues that we should, we should be aware of. And are there any other kind of industry trends going on that we've not mentioned so far that you think we should be thinking about? Well, it's a very good point. I mean, should I, how does ICOCA um, cover this issue of, of cyber and fraud? <clears throat> I'm not sure I know. Um, I, think, I think the thing is that we, it's quite important to put it on an agenda so you can try and examine what one can and can't do about it. And you're quite right. There are human rights and privacy issues involved. Do you say to everyone in your firm, I'd like to have access to your computer so I can put in a, a good safety net and uh, security patch, uh, patches to make sure that you don't have uh, vulnerabilities? That's quite difficult. A lot of firms say uh, you can do that with your laptop that's owned by the firm, but you can't obviously do it if you've got a home laptop. So I think there's going to be problems about that. And I think on fraud, I think there are aspects of fraud, like computer fraud, um, where you can start to train your staff and your security element in your firm should possibly be responsible for that, to making sure that people are very much better aware of phishing attacks, um, about people uh, trying to get access to your computer and your files and your data illegally. But actually working it through will take some time. And what I can't predict, obviously, is how technology moves on. Um, you know, we may find that actually quite quickly, fingerprint or facial recognition gives us a degree of security. Uh, that means that actually your information is better protected. But I'm um, slightly dodging this. All I can say is I think it has to be on the agenda. Well, Richard, thank you so much indeed for your time and your insights today. We uh, look forward to continuing to work with you and control risks and SCAG, of course. And, uh, but for, for today, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Chris. Look forward to it. Goodbye.